to get. As we do, we've already uh, uh, kind of introduced the passage here this morning. I want to give a little context for where we're going to be. Uh, We've been talking about uh, encountering heaven while living on earth and just the practical implications of the doctrine of heaven. And uh, we're going to drop right in the end of the book of Revelation. So I feel like I need to set the context just a little bit, even though we're all familiar with this uh, book. Uh, Over the course of almost 20 years of international travel with Camps Abroad, our our teams have stayed in some pretty primitive conditions. Uh, If you consider, first of all, most of the places we go to are developing nations, so you're already a little bit more uh, primitive there. And then you talk about camp, and camp is usually a a step below your uh, normal life as well, so you got another level there. And I remember uh, one particular trip with a team to the interior of Mexico. We were going to a desert area, and uh, it was pretty much just a church building with the desert all around it, and it wasn't even close to a town. And so the guys would uh, sleep on the roof of the church building in sleeping bags. The girls would sleep inside the church building on dusty benches, and there was no shower facility, no running water. And uh, you would sweat in the sun, and then you get dusty in the games because the field was pretty much dirt. And then you would go and just kind of cake it on, and then you'd swelter in the services. And uh, we literally were caked with sweat and dirt for several days. And I mean, baby wipes will only get you so far in trying to to freshen up. So uh, eventually, as camp finished up, we had a great camp. Kids had a, a wonderful time. We drove back to up to the border. We stopped overnight at a hotel as we crossed over. And I tell you what, that first shower and air conditioning and clean bed in a week, our team really, really appreciated it. Uh, you can just visualize the layers of mud swirling down the drain as you washed, washed it all off. But I can tell you, none of our team would have fully appreciated the blessing of that hotel room without first experiencing that rustic week of camp in the desert. You know, in a similar way, a person who jumps over the long middle section of Revelation will not be able to fully appreciate the glorious ending of chapters 21 and 22. And many believers, I'm afraid, take that approach to the book. I've heard, I just read the first four chapters, skip over the middle, jump to the end. Um, You know, that's kind of like skipping your your Brussels sprouts and and broccoli and going right to dessert. Uh, When you go uh, into a meal, you just get to the, the part that we enjoy and yet you don't really benefit from the full, long middle section, it's challenging to understand. And as we do understand it, it's difficult to accept because basically what you see, God is undoing the creation that he uh, created so long ago. But if you trudge through the earthly parts of Revelation, then you're fully ready to enjoy the heavenly parts. And I say all that because we're doing exactly that, all right? We're going right to the dessert part. Uh, kids, maybe you can uh, lobby your parents to let you do that today in celebration. Eat your dessert first today. There you go. So I'm going to assume we're somewhat familiar with the sobering events that lead up to this point, and it culminates, just for a quick reminder, with chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, as unbelievers are brought before the great throne of judgment to give account for how they've lived. And this is God enacting perfect justice Everyone who has ever lived will give account to their creator, and if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. That sobering scene, though, abruptly gives way to a new one, 
And this past weekend, we've been doing a, a survey of some key passages about heaven. And even though heaven is mentioned quite a bit in the Bible, God in his providence has given us surprisingly little detail about it in his word. He just gives us brief, tantalizing glimpses of it. It's almost like a, a trailer for a long-anticipated movie. It's really hard to pick out the plot fully uh, just by watching that little teaser. Heaven is a real place, but we often have difficulty grasping just its significance for us in how we live today. And as we've gone through, we've talked about the comforting hope of heaven. We've uh, explored John 14. Uh, we've talked about the eternal values of heaven. Uh, we've seen just how beneficial it is to understand what God values. So we can value that here as well. And we've talked about the courageous motivation of heaven, looking at Stephen's life. And now uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about the glorious reality of heaven. Heaven is a real place, and it should impact how we live right now. Imagine you're planning a vacation to a very special location. It's a place where you've always wanted to go, and it sounds really wonderful, and you've seen pictures online, and, and yet you learn that one of your friends has been there, right? They've, they've lived there, actually, for several years. And so as natural, you want to go to them and find out more about it. What is it like? Tell me, what, do I, what should I expect? You know, it's, it's almost like God has done that for us in the book of Revelation. Now, he's told us this is what it's going to be like. And as we consider this, though, I want to keep in mind, it's a lot of descriptive detail in these two chapters, and it's the most we have recorded for us. But even then, it's hard to picture it. Right? It's hard for us to understand with our earthly minds what it is that John is describing. And you know what? We come face to face with the shorting of the, the human language to communicate this. Right? You really cannot, and John wrestles with this, he can't even put it all into words. But the best that he does, divinely inspired obviously, we still have a hard time understanding it. And it gives us this new reality though that God revealed to him. And in these descriptions, I want us to keep in, in mind, especially this morning, that heaven is not about all the trappings that we're going to see. Heaven is all about a person. It's about God himself. It's about who he is and what he is doing. And even this morning, as we go through this section of scripture, we're going to focus on four actions that God is going to take. He is bringing about a glorious resolution to the storyline of history. So let's look at these four actions here this morning. First, we see God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 1, then I saw is one of John's favorite phrases. It's a signature introducing a new vision. I counted at least 12 occurrences of this throughout Revelation. So John now is mar marking a transition to a different section. Now, what is John going to see? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God will only unveil this new heaven and new earth after the end time events of chapter 20 are complete, especially what he described at the very end. That final judgment, here is a phrase that should catch our attention, and the earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. That's verse 11, chapter 20. That conclusion is reinforced then by this verse in chapter 21, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. There's a lot in this first verse to unpack. 
God is going to do something new. From Peter's description of the same event in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, we know this new creation will replace God's old creation. Here's the verse. He says this, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, it's, it's hard for us to say for sure, but it almost sounds like God is going to return the universe to the state in which it was in Genesis 1 verse 2, when the earth was without form and void. He's going to purge away all evil and imperfect things in the universe by fire. Uh, this is necessary because of how thoroughly our present universe has been corrupted by the fall. Paul refers to it this way in Romans chapter 8 verse 22. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is why God has to wipe the slate clean and start over, but not completely over. There has to be some continuity between the old order and the new one because God's people will still be recognized as individuals from that old order. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul uses the example of a seed or the kernel dying and sprouting into a full-grown plant, but the new seed came from the old, right? And if, that, if God is going to start completely over, uh, he's going to make an exception with the people who are made in his image. Because those of us who are born again already are a part of that new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Every believer knows this from personal experience, that God doesn't just renovate us, right? God does something completely new. He removes our heart of stone, and he gives us a heart of flesh that is responsive to his spirit and his word. So whether God starts completely over after terminating his old creation, or he recreates everything from the same basic elements from the old, we can safely conclude the new creation will be radically different from the old, and we will be equipped to enter into it. Here's another example of how this will be completely new. Here's a difference. God will uh, do away with the sea. Genesis 1.9 tells us that the third day of creation, God formed the seas. Now we come to Revelation, we find the sea was no more. Now, that's, this has been a significant part of our environment ever since the creation. I, the seas cover three-fourths of the earth's surface. After the worldwide flood recounted in Genesis 6, the oceans and the seas settled back into their allotted places. But in the future state, John tells us the sea is no more, indicating a complete change in our climate and our, our conditions in which we exist. Because of the context, I think we're meant to take this literally. The environment of our present world is based on water, right? We know life can't exist without it. 60% of our bodies are made of water. The new creation will be based on a completely different principle. Water will no longer be required for life. Now, in chapter 22, John does describe a river flowing from the throne of God. What are we to make of that? Uh, Well, it doesn't seem like it's made up of water as we know it. It's made up of the water of life, a different substance altogether. When considering that the sea will be no more in verse 1, some scholars have pointed out that in the book of Revelation, John connects the sea to chaos and rebellion and danger, right? And that is true. 
Chapter 13, verse 1, we see the beast rising out of the sea. And that beast turns out to be Antichrist, the master of chaos on the earth during that tribulation period. Maybe uh, John does mean for us to see symbolism of the banishment of all chaos by doing away with the seas. But I think that he means this literally as well. There will be no physical seas or oceans in the eternal state. God will do something completely new. So here's what we should take away from this. As we try to envision what this will be like, it's going to be really hard for us to capture it because it's totally outside of our experience. We continue on with the second point here. We see God dwelling with his people. This is the second action we pick out here. In verse 2, John records this, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here we have a melding of two distinct themes that occur throughout the book of Revelation, the city and the bride. And John introduces it briefly here because he's going to return to focus fully on it in the rest of the chapter. In our current world, there's a great gulf fixed between heaven and earth. You can't just decide, I think I'll visit heaven today, right? You can't just go there for a visit. This jewel of God's new creation, though, comes down out of heaven, and it represents a direct link between heaven and earth. Here's what this signals. Accessibility. No more separation between God and man. If you look at verse 3, here's what, uh, here's what John records. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, look, the dwelling place of God is with man. In Revelation, when a voice comes from the throne, it speaks for God himself. And this voice calls out for attention and directs our attention to the city of Jerusalem descending from heaven. It's about to give us new information about it. This city is the dwelling place of God, probably where his throne is located. The word dwelling place is the word tabernacle or tent. It brings to mind the connection between the tabernacle and the presence of God in the Old Testament. We see the glory of God resided there in the Holy of Holies. And now it's residing in the New Jerusalem. The children of Israel carried the tabernacle wherever they went through their wilderness of wanderings. And the author of Hebrews develops that further in Hebrews 8 and 9. And he reveals this, that Jesus is the greater and more perfect tabernacle. And God came to earth in human form through the incarnation. But that was just foreshadowing for the ultimate coming when the city of God will descend from heaven to the earth and he will dwell with them and will be his, they will be his people. The word will dwell is in the future tense and it's a promise. This will eventually come to pass. To dwell means to take up residence somewhere. It's like when you purchase a house and you eventually move into it, you would say, this is now my new address. This is where I live. This is where you can find me. God says, I'm taking up residence here with my people. For all eternity, he will remain with man. Distance and separation will no longer be necessary because by that point, sin will have been completely removed and dealt with forever. This city descending signals a return to the pre-fall condition of mankind. It's like when Adam and Eve walked with God in the Garden of Eden, there was nothing to interrupt their fellowship. This is the most important aspect of the new eternal state. Even if we have a hard time understanding it, God's presence will no longer be veiled as it has been throughout history. We finally will see God as he is. 
This is the climax, the culmination of redemptive history. Embedded in verse 3, we find the title of honor. It's the highest privilege that a human being can attain to, to be called his people, God's people. What an astonishing privilege. We're reminded of the teachings of Jesus in John 10 when he constantly referred to us as my sheep. He claims ownership. There's a relationship that's established. And in the eternal state, there will be no need of a a shepherd anymore. There won't be any danger. There won't be any deprivation. There'll be no uh, need to be led anymore because we will be with God. We'll get to more on that in verse 4. For now, consider what it means to be claimed by God as his people. The sense of ownership goes beyond the general ownership of all creation, right? We know that God owns everything because he created everything, but he identifies uniquely with his people. None of us deserve that privilege. Reminded of Psalm 144, verse 3, what is man that you regard him, that you even consider him, or the son of man that you think of him? But it will be true. God himself will be with them as their God. Again, John emphasizes the presence of God in this new eternal arrangement. There's a mutual belonging. They belong to him. He belongs to them. And while this is already true, we do enjoy God's presence in this life. God has promised to be with us continually. We know that. We believe that to be true. The presence of God now, though, is primarily spiritual. Yes, he's omnipresent, but we can't see him with our physical eyes. That will change in the end time. The presence that God promises in verse 3 will transcend anything that redeemed people have ever known before that point. When God promises to be with them in verse 3, he's promising to never leave his people physically forever. Now, this is actually what all people are longing for whether they realize it or not. It's what we were created for. This never-ending fellowship with our creator, it's what we pursue after, and often in misguided ways. But this is what God intended from the beginning. And in the eternal state, we'll be united with him forever. This is what makes heaven what it is, God dwelling with us. Heaven is all about a person. His name is God. And we'll get to live with him. In chapter 21, as it continues, we learn much more about this new Jerusalem. And we don't have time to go into a lot of detail this morning, but I do want to touch on a few highlights. But this is an example of the many times in Revelation when we sense John's frustration with the limits of human vocabulary, even the precise language of Koine Greek. I'm sure all of us can relate to that feeling when you're trying to describe an especially poignant experience to somebody else right? And words just fall short. I feel that way this morning, and I think John felt that way as he recorded this. Here, though, are some characteristics of this new Jerusalem. It will be glorious in size, in beauty, and in purity. Let's talk about the size of the city. In verse 15, John's angelic guide produces a measuring rod made of gold. That's similar what happened in Ezekiel 40, only that guide, that angel, used a wooden measuring rod. That would have been the normal type of measuring rod. The gold rod emphasizes just how special this city is. And the angel proceeds to measure the walls and the gates of this city with his gold rod, and we find out it's a perfect cube, right? The length is the same as its width, verse 16. And the length and the width and the height are equal. 
right? So this is no ordinary design for a city, right? And as we continue, we find that the measurements appear in multiples of 12, again, emphasizing the perfection of this city. The walls themselves are 144 cubits thick, a perfect number 12 squared. I had to pull out a calculator when I was studying this, right? Not the usual tool you have for, for a message preparation. A cubit, as you know, is 18 inches. In our measurements, that makes the walls 216 feet thick, or 72 yards, almost as thick as a football field is long. This city dwarfs the greatest of mankind's efforts at city building throughout history. The city itself measures 12,000 stadia. As a Greek measurement comes from the Latin word stadium, a stadium typically had a lot of seats. It was a big arena, had links laid out on the field for various competitions. It translates in our measurements to just over 600 feet long, so like two football fields long. So 12,000 stadia translates into an astonishing 1,380 miles. And because of this, some would argue we should take this city as being a symbolic, a uh, symbol of the perfect life that God and his people will live forever. Uh, in eternity. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't take these as literal dimensions of this city. John gives them to us for that reason. God is not limited in terms of design or construction. It contrasts us human beings, anything his mind can conceive, it can truly achieve, right? And he could even uh, keep the city elevated above the earth if he chose to. Uh, it's interesting, John never says it comes all the way down to the earth. Uh, he just saw it descending from heaven. Uh, maybe it stops partway down. So to put this in perspective, since we're familiar with U.S. geography, that would be a distance from New York City to Lincoln, Nebraska. Right? That's about a 20-hour drive, roughly half the distance of the United States from east to west. From north to south, you're talking about going from Canada all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. All told, you're talking about three-quarters of the size of the United States in square miles. Now, that is just the base of the city. It's three-dimensional. It's a cube. And here's where it gets really mind-boggling for us, right? In our world, most birds migrate below one mile up. Bald eagles have been known to fly as high as two miles up. Most clouds travel below four miles of the Earth's surface. Mount Everest rises up five and a half miles. Commercial jets cruise at about seven miles. You hit the stratosphere at 11 miles up, 62 miles, and you're officially in space, as scientists refer to it. 200 miles, you come to the International Space Station's orbit. By 1,380 miles, you're up where the science satellites are orbiting high above Earth. This must be supernatural construction. The Earth must be completely redesigned for this to work. What will it be like inside? We don't know. Only God knows that. But Jesus wasn't exaggerating when he said in John 14, 2, in my father's house are many rooms. You could fit a lot of rooms in that. The city will be massive in size, plenty of room for every believer who has ever lived to reside in a mansion of gigantic proportions with plenty of space for everything else. A perfect city needs to be perfect. It'll be glorious in size and in beauty. Back in John, first, verse 11, John recorded, having the glory of God, its radiance was like the most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. We see an increase in the word like here as John struggles to describe what he sees. 
Now, precious stones are notoriously difficult to translate from Greek, and these are no exceptions. The descriptions indicate a substance as clear as crystal, right? It's something like a diamond that reflects light in a brilliant way. We can relate to that. In verse 18, though, John makes a contrast between the material of the city and the material of the walls. They're two different things. And the city was of pure gold, like clear glass. Now, what are we to make of that? Well, in our experience, gold isn't clear at all. And John knew what gold was. He uses gold, I think, to communicate the priceless value of this city. But it's more along the lines of clear glass than uh, of yellow metal. This is a foreign substance to us. This is gold without any impurity. It's clear material that will shine with dazzling light. The clear city will reflect the brilliant glory of God. That's what it's all about. That's why it's clear. It makes the entire structure more dazzling than the most perfect diamond. Picture the brightest light that you can imagine shining through the most brilliant diamond that's ever been cut. Only then it won't blind us. We'll have the capacity to view it and enjoy it. And then John describes the foundation of the city wall. Again, verses 19 and 20 are our translator's nightmare. You can tell this by the wide variation of translations between versions of the Bible. It's really difficult to know what stones did John have in mind as he was writing this. What we do know is this. There were 12 of them, as stated in verse 14, and they seem to correspond with the 12 engraved stones that were on the breastplate of the Israelite high priest in the book of Exodus. There's also a parallel here to the 12 precious stones that Ezekiel names in Ezekiel 28 as being present in Eden. Whatever they look like, you can be sure these massive stones will be astonishingly beautiful in their variety. The purest of colors, red, green, yellow, blue, and every shade in between. Verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls made of the gates made, each of the gates made from a single pearl. Now, pearls have been considered valuable since antiquity. Jesus referred to that pearl of great price in one of his parables. And even today, we see pearls as having value according to their shape and color and purity. But these pearls are unique. No pearl has ever been produced uh, by an oyster like this, right? Each gate will be made of a single perfect pearl towering over 1,000 miles high. Normally, gates are made of wood or metal. Normally, gates are designed to keep out uh, somebody who has hostile intent, keep out an enemy, keep the inhabitants safe. Well, there won't be any enemies left by then, right? God will have destroyed all evil. That's why when we get to verse 25, John notes the gates remain open all the time. There's no need for protection. The doors are for decoration only. Our front door is made of fiberglass, and I have to paint it uh, to keep it from fading in the sun. You know, God's front doors are made of pearl, and they never fade. You talk about stunning. One of the phrases that people have latched onto in regards to heaven is found in verse 21. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. We, we think, well, I, I can't wait to walk those streets of gold. You know, I think it's safe to say we have no clue what this will be like. This really matches the description of the rest of the city. Verse 18, the city was of pure gold, the streets are of pure gold, and again, it's an image of value and beauty. It's not like anything we're familiar with. Our finest gold will be a, a pale shadow to the real gold that is present in heaven. And yet everything is transparent. Why? Again, it highlights magnifying the blazing glory of God because he's at the center of this city. 
Taking all this together, it adds up to something breathtakingly beautiful. No wonder John's words fail him. No wonder our thoughts fail us. Well, let's pause for a moment to think about this. What will make the city so beautiful? It's not all the gold. It's not the gems. It's not the pearls, the colors, the light. It's the presence of God. It's God himself. All of those beauties pale in comparison to God. He is the beautiful one, the only beautiful one. And that's what the city is all about, the glory of God. It's designed to reflect his glory. You know, that is true of us as believers right now as well. You and I have been designed to reflect his glory. So this city will be glorious in beauty and also in purity. One of the defining characteristics of this city is that it's holy. John says that in verse 2 and verse 10. Every time he introduces it, he calls it the holy city, New Jerusalem. The word holy literally means to be devoted to service to God. By extension, to be pure, because only something pure can be devoted to God. All right, the, the city of Jerusalem is holy by either of those definitions, pure and devoted to God. It follows then the inhabitants of that city will also be pure because they have been redeemed and purified, and they will be completely devoted to God. They will worship him. They will serve him continually. In fact, look down in verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So by this point, God will have purged all evil out of the universe, all uncleanness, so that everything remaining will be holy, including the people remaining. That's why they can enter the holy city. And let us be reminded, it is not because of their own righteousness. It's not because of who we are or what we have done. It is only through the atoning blood of Jesus. There's another image of purity found in verses 23 to 25. It's that of light. We picked it out along the way. It's another major theme throughout the book of Revelation. But this is a different kind of light. It's hard for us to comprehend, but heavenly light sources that we are used to, like the sun, the moon, the stars, will be obsolete, right? They'll be eclipsed by the glory of God. There'll be no more need for them. It really makes sense. As one commentator said, of what good is their pitiful reflected light when he who is light itself is present? Heaven is the climax of the image of light in the Bible, and it reinforces this idea of purity. The main point of this city, though, descending from heaven to earth, is symbolizing God's presence with his people. God has come, and God will remain. As we continue on back in verse 4 now, here's another action we see God taking. We see him banishing sorrow and death. Verse 4 is a beautiful verse, probably one of the most famous in all of Revelation, and for good reason. It's a promise. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The timing of this verse is important. It comes only after God announces his new creation and it is being rolled out. It seems to be an indication there will be sorrow up to that point. Even after the first resurrection, even during the millennium, Right? There will be sorrow, and this sorrow will encompass the judgment seat of Christ when believers will give account for how they lived. It's possible that sorrow might also encompass the great white throne judgment. 
We don't know for sure, but if saints are allowed to witness that sobering scene, they no doubt will shed many tears over the tremendous damage that sin has done to God's wonderful creation. But experiencing sorrow will lead to deeper joy. And that phrase, wipe away every tear from their eyes, is extremely personal. The word tear is singular. Every individual tear. God cares about every sorrow you have. It's from their eyes, though. It includes all believers. He is so great and grand and knows all things. He can care for everyone at once with the same kind of personal attention. This phrase overlaps a later phrase in the verse, nor crying, no tears, no crying. Now, John doesn't specify what kind of tears these are, but I think it's safe to say these aren't tears of joy, right? We naturally associate tears with sorrow and pain. These are tears of sadness. In the eternal state, there will be no more sorrow of any kind. Later on in the verse, he gets more specific. Neither will there be any mourning, mourning that causes tears, nor crying. You think of all the things that people mourn over. The loss of something that you once had. Disappointment over something you don't have. Relational hurt. Unmet desires, betrayal, saying goodbye, whether temporarily or permanently. You know, everything that causes us sorrow and grief will be banished forever. Think of it this way. In, uh, in our day, we take medicine, and some medicine will treat the symptoms, and some medicine actually treats the illness, the, the core of the problem. Now, neither will be necessary in heaven. We won't need medicine in heaven God will get rid of not just the feeling of sorrow, he will get rid of everything that causes sorrow, right? He'll get rid of both the, the symptom and the actual illness, nor pain anymore. Pain often results in tears as well. You think of all the different kinds of pain that you and I experience as people living in a fallen world, physical pain like back spasms, toothaches, cuts and bruises, burns, bee stings, illness, cancer, aging, pain of headaches, bug bites, and on and on it goes. There's emotional pain in this world, though, too. You have a pain of uh, relationships and abuse and disappointment, pain that comes from people hurting you. Then there's mental pain. There's trauma and mental illness and autism and depression and worry and stress and sleep deprivation, all kinds of pain. Can you imagine a world where all of that is gone? I can't. It's too real here. It's so far outside the realm of our human experience. Maybe it would help to think of all the vocations that will not be necessary in heaven. Doctors and nurses, teachers, lawyers, security, dentists, financial planners, insurance salesmen, physical therapists, optometrists, veterinarians, firemen, law enforcement. You get the idea. You know, most of our vocations are not going to be needed in heaven. I haven't thought this through carefully, but musicians probably will be, so you guys are in good company. You get the idea. Back in chapter 20, verse 14, we saw that God cast death and Hades into a lake of fire, symbolizing their final destruction, and now he states it again, and death shall be no more. This is a pivotal statement. Since the fall, death has haunted 
and hunted mankind like a relentless predator. Little by little, death robs us of everything we count valuable, everything we pour our lives into, all the things we love and value. The power of death drives our frustration with life. Time and death gradually rob us of everything we know and love. And even believers who have the hope of salvation experience this profound sense of separation and loneliness because of death. Many of you have experienced that personally. But in the end, my friend, God will put death to death. Years ago, Kelly and I were studying the subject of death. We came across a powerful image in Isaiah 25. It became one of our favorite passages. And Isaiah is talking about the end time. And God will set a great feast for all people. All his people will come, and it'll be a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine, and it'll be quite a feast. But then out of the blue, here Isaiah records these shocking words. At this feast, God will also eat something. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. You see the similar language here as John reflects what Isaiah predicted But this is only possible when God abolishes death. So you could summarize this image in this way. God eats death, right? There's a a story behind this for our family. Um, For 15 years, we had a a blank wall uh, in our dining room, right? Just just tan paint, right? It's kind of blah. And we just left it that way. I think we didn't get, get around to it. But then Kelly was looking for something really special to put on that wall. And um, as we were going through this, she's like, I want it to be something about uh, eating together. And she struck on this verse. She's like, I want to do that. I want to put God eats death in front of our dining room table. <laughs> I vetoed it, right? I was like, yeah, I'm trying to imagine having an unsaved person sitting at our table. And, and there it is. But But I appreciate the sentiment, right? It's a constant reminder that we need. Folks, this life is not all there is. God is going to destroy death. There's a triumphant finality to this. Can you imagine living life without the fear of death? And all that it entails? Flowers that will never wilt, grass that never turns brown, friends and family that remain ever youthful, always healthy, no more decay, no more decline, Heaven will be all of that and more. Days without end, each more pleasant than the last. Death, the greatest curse of human existence, abolished. In Revelation 21.4, we see death shall be no more. And everything that is associated with that. Finally, we see this. Another action God takes. He makes everything new. This last phrase explains why that is possible. The former things have passed away. What former things? All things connected to the old earth. All things connected to the fallen creation that groans continually under the effects of the fall. We saw this uh, same word in verse 1. It's passed away. It has ceased to exist. The old age has ended. The new age will have dawned, which is exactly what God declares in verse 5 when he says this. He who is seated on the throne, that's God, says this, Behold, I'm making all things new. Not just one or two things, all things new. This new heaven and new earth will be more wonderful than anything we can begin to imagine because God is unlimited in his creativity. 
And it's a fascinating choice of a verb here. He says, I am making. It's in the present active tense. It's an ongoing activity. God continually creating. Creation is his realm. It's like God will never stop creating in this new world of his. Endless creativity unleashed. One thing we can say for certain, this eternal state will be anything but boring. At this point, I want to be careful to stick close to what the text says And I want to caution you as well as you read or as you think about this, right? You you don't want to to go go wild with your your sanctified imagination about what it'll be like, right? You have to be careful uh, not to read in more than what God tells us. But I think we can safely say this. It'll be far grander and more glorious than anything your mind can come up with. And we experience just a small taste of the wonder of his present creation, Right? There are wonderful things in creation that we can enjoy, the beauty, the variety, the detail that he has crafted. And we're experiencing all of that in the context of sin. What will life be like without that limitation? We can hardly imagine it, but I think it's safe to say it will not be at all like the misconceptions that our culture has about people dressed in white robes and sitting on a fluffy cloud and strumming a harp that sounds really, really boring to me. No wonder lost people don't want to go to heaven, right? If that's what they think. You know, actually, the eternal state will be quite tangible and physical. It's not like a state of consciousness here. People living will have actual physical bodies only without the limitation of sin. And if you're a believer, you really should long for heaven. You should be enamored with heaven. But maybe we have lost some of that longing in the church today. And I wonder why that is. Could it be that over time, as our quality of life has continued to get better and better, we become more and more enamored with this world instead of with the next? My friend, uh, that is a tragedy. There are many uh, Negro spiritual songs that were all about heaven. You know, I think probably why they thought so much about heaven in those times was because their lives on earth were so miserable. Right? And, and the comparison of that made it more real to them of where they were going. And maybe we've lost some of that urgency. Paul called us to set our affection on things that are above, not on things on the earth. And if you're enamored with God, you'll be enamored with heaven because heaven is all about God. So what should we do? We should be enamored with God. And God has revealed himself to us in his word. So it should drive us back to his word to know more of him and to become closer to him. There's so much more to explore even in this passage, but I'm going to wind it down here. And I want to conclude by drawing our attention to two titles that God gives for himself in verse 6. After affirming the absolute truth of this revelation in verse 5, God himself says this to John. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is the formula he started Revelation with, chapter 1, verse 8. It serves as a bookend, really, to what is in between. The Alpha, the one and only Alpha. The Omega, the one and only Omega. Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega, the last letter. And it signifies this. God is the sum of all knowledge, the first and the last and everything in between. And this phrase expresses not only eternity, but infinitude. This is why it's appropriate to use it in the context of the eternal state. God existed before all of creation. He's the beginning of all things, and God exists without end. 
And because of that, he will bring about the perfect end for his creation as well. This God is also the purpose of all things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. The beginning of this weekend series, I shared what prompted me to begin studying heaven. And I'm still in the process of studying each passage in the New Testament that addresses our eternal state. I don't know how long it'll take me, but I'm committed to seeing it through. You know why? Because I need to be reminded of this while I'm living on earth. The more we can understand of where we're going, the more we will know how to live on this earth. And if you're going through a trial, it's so easy to be consumed with that trial. Maybe you fall into a pattern of trying to avoid it and seek to distract yourself, take your mind off of how hard life is. But folks, that doesn't work. There's only one person who can satisfy you, and it's God. And that's why he says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. He is the one who satisfies. He is the one our hearts should be set on. This is the God of heaven. In a small way this morning, we've encountered heaven, and it's only possible through God's divine inspired word. What should our response be to this? It is to live according to the glorious reality of heaven. This life is important, yes, but this life is not all there is. And we should affirm, my friends, our future is glorious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, the truth of it, and I pray that you'd use it to lift our eyes off of our present day surroundings and lift it to you, the God of heaven. Lord, help us to live according to what you have set out in your word. Help us to live according to your values because we're citizens of this eternal destiny already. And Father, forgive us when we get distracted. Forgive us when we fall into sin and we give in to temptation Lord, forgive us when we don't live in the reality of who we are in Christ. Pray that you'd use this word this morning to encourage our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.